Last Sunday, we began to study chapter 4, where James warns his audience about the dangers of worldliness. Maybe we need to ask the question, what is worldliness, just for the sake of clarification, because I think that there are different understandings of what that is and what that means among Christians. Uh, Typically, the way that Christians think of worldliness is we focus entirely on behavior and on conduct. Uh, We we have said, uh, well, that guy is very worldly. He acts worldly. Or we say that of ourselves at times when we we see that in our life. Uh, But it's important that we understand that, that worldliness isn't just about conduct. It's not just about what we're doing, you know, maybe in how we're emulating the world in our conduct. Um, It's a multifaceted kind of thing. And some would say, well, worldliness by definition is like, you know, drinking alcohol, you know, having a beer, having a glass of wine or smoking, maybe smoking a cigar, maybe watching movies, um, you know, and similar kinds of pursuits. And interestingly, if you study the Reformation and a lot of writings from the Reformers, they didn't frame the question, what is worldliness, around what I would call fundamentalist taboos. Um, Luther, for example, savored good German beer. And German beer is pretty good if you've ever tried it. Um, Calvin indulged in such diversions as bowling. Now, I didn't even know they had bowling back in the 1500s, 1600s. Was there a McHenry Lanes, you know, over in Geneva? Um, but he loved to bowl. And, uh, and maybe we would even think of Charles Spurgeon himself, who was known for his, uh, or for his love of, of fine cigars. Now, some would say, hey, we're talking about, you know, good German beer. We're talking about bowling. We're talking about fine cigars and enjoying something like that on occasion, we think, wow, that's worldly. They're emulating the world. And also when we think of uh, what Scripture says about the world, it, it speaks, when it speaks negatively of the world, it's referring to not necessarily the conduct of people, but it's referring to the ethical and philosophical edifice that the world has erected against God and against the truth. So, so when, when Scripture speaks of the world and worldliness, it is usually in reference to what the world believes or should believe and doesn't. Um, it's not referring to uh, what I would call maybe creature comforts, like a bottle of good beer or... Um, a good stogie or something like that. And I do enjoy those things on occasion, so I'm not trying to defend my position or anything like that. But I think what we've done is we've just reduced worldliness down to those sorts of things, which is a mistake. Because when the scripture speaks of worldliness or the world, it is referring to a belief system. Um, I think the way that I would define worldliness... And it can certainly manifest itself through conduct, undoubtedly, but it's not just conduct. But the way that I would define worldliness is that I would, I would call it believing the presuppositions of the world and then living those things out. 
For example, the world believes and thinks that drunkenness is okay. And we're not talking about having a bottle of beer here. We're talking about having 12 in a row. The world believes and says that drunkenness is okay and it's perfectly normal. Well, if I as a Christian, we know that Scripture speaks about drunkenness. It, it forbids it. If I as a Christian believe what the world says about drunkenness, if I believe the world's position and view on drunkenness is true, then I am worldly. And if I practice it, I'm worldly. But you see, as a, as a Christian, man, I can actually enjoy a beer and, and, and totally disbelieve what the world believes about how you should drink more beer than you should. Because I have a beer, it doesn't make me worldly. If I get drunk, or if I believe what the world says about alcohol abuse, and go ahead and get drunk and just take this pill the next day, it'll make you feel better. Now I'm worldly. Um, another example would be the world believes that uh, promiscuity and sleeping around is okay. The world tells us to take on as many sexual partners as you can. It really communicates this to men. Now, if I, as a Christian, believe this to be true, I am worldly. And if I practice it, I am worldly and a fornicator. Now, it's important that we understand that, that partaking of things that God created for our enjoyment and for His glory, such as fine wine or sex, it's not worldly. Wasn't that long ago where there was a whole group of Christians that, that you know, married Christians who would only have sexual relations with their spouses for the purpose of procreation, but anything outside of that was worldly and sinful. <laughs> and this is a mentality that might still be around today. It was around not too long ago. So, so partaking of things that God created, and, and maybe you don't understand this or know this, but God actually created sex within the context of a marriage for, for our happiness, for our pleasure, and for His glory. But that's not the way the world views it. If I believe God's designed for that, for my good and His glory, I, and I practice that in the context of what He has clearly said to do, that's not worldly. That brings God glory. But... Believing what the world says about, about these things, about wine or about sex or about any of these things, believing what the world tells us about these things, and then, and this, then misusing these things, that combination of believing and misusing or practicing, that's worldliness. Does that make sense to you? You got people that are going out there that name the name of Christ that are pointing at people that are smoking a cigar, and he's acting worldly. Well, not necessarily. Some of you might be thinking, but that's tobacco, and it causes cancer. Let me, let me give you a newsflash. Everything causes cancer. Just living in the Central Valley causes cancer, breathing this air. But people want to fine-tune this stuff and just start pointing. I'm all of the camp of focus on yourself. But it's out there, and you got this critical spirit among those who name Christ, and they think that, oh, he's having a beer, it's worldly. Well, if I believe what the world believes about drinking, and I practice that, now I'm worldly. 
but not just because I enjoy something like that. And as I said, I'm not defending myself. There was a time where I believed what the world believed about alcohol. I was worldly, and I practiced it. I was sauced all the time. It's been about two weeks since I left that behavior behind. No, I'm kidding. It's been a long time. Bruce is like, oh, man, we're going to have to add that to the elder agenda today. We, we don't want to get confused about what worldliness is. It is, it is a two-faceted thing. It is belief and practice. Don't think that it's just practice. It's belief. It's belief, too. And the brothers whom James addressed in his letter, the aspiring teachers of God's word, right? We see that in chapter 3, verse 1. That's who he's been talking about or talking to for a while here. They displayed worldliness in belief and in conduct. It manifests itself in conduct because of what they believed. In the previous section, they showed forth or displayed worldliness through the pursuit of their inner passions. The, the world tells us to follow our hearts, which the Bible says are deceitful and evil above all else. But the world says, follow your heart. And in a way, these brothers were following their hearts and pursuing their inner passions and lusts. They agreed with what the world would say about those things and then practiced it. Therefore, they are worldly. And of course, the pursuit of, of these inner passions and acting out these lusts that they had for, for power and prestige, the things that they thought they could secure through teaching positions in the church, which is just completely asinine, but they thought that they could do that. And the pursuit of these things caused quarrels and fights in their church. There was a competitiveness between competitors in the church vying for these positions and trying to act out these passions and lusts and, and wanting what the rabbis in the community wanted, the power and prestige of being a teacher of God's word, which is I can't think of a, a worse reason to want to pursue such a position. They had, in a sense, followed their hearts, which is a worldly tenet. That's a worldly precept. That's a worldly practice. In the next section, James tells us that believers who pursue their inner passions are not only displaying worldliness or acting worldly, but they show forth a kind of friendship with the world that is intensely, highly offensive to God. Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. Our focus this morning will be verses 4 and 5. I have entitled this sermon as, as simply as I could, and it's just friendship with the world. That's what we'll be talking about. Let's pray before we get to work here. Father, we humble ourselves now and we thank you for this opportunity and time to sit under your teaching through your word. We pray, Lord, that you make worldliness so clear to us and that we don't walk out of here ready to point more fingers at others whom we think are worldly, but we're ready to look in the mirror and we're ready to analyze ourselves and, and see what worldly beliefs we have adopted or are still hanging on to, which then lead to worldly practice and these sorts of things in a sense. So 
expose our worldliness. May, may we in this room here today focus on ourselves, not on others. We don't need to be like the Pharisee beating his chest saying, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there, that tax collector. We need to take ownership over our own lives. May we hear your word today and may the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and may you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and pick up where we left off last week. We're going to begin with verse 4a. I've had to divide up this verse a little bit. <clears throat> listen, listen to what James says next. After pointing out how they're pursuing their inner passions and it's leading to fights and quarrels and these things, after exposing that, that ideology and, and practice and conduct, listen to what he says. And notice, notice the punctuation. You adulterous people. And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Stop there. Literally, after exposing their worldliness through this, these selfish pursuits of inner passions and lust, James just unleashes Probably, I would think, the sharpest, most stinging rebuke in his entire letter. This, this, is, just, this is just hard. He, he calls his readers, his audience, this church, this congregation, these brothers, he calls them adulterous people. This is, this is like, this is, this is heavy. And we need to analyze what, what's going on here a little bit. We need to break it down, maybe look at some of the original words. The Greek root word for adulterous is moikalis. Moikalis. And, and it's kind of a universal term. It refers to both men and women. So, so he's not just addressing the brothers who had these ridiculous pursuits for power and this stuff through teaching. He's addressing the entire body, the entire congregation, and, and every Christian from that moment forward. It, it has the idea of adulterers, which would be men, and adulteresses, which would be women. So he's not singling out just the brothers who were pursuing teaching positions. This is, this is everyone. Everyone in the church, including me and you. What is adultery? Adultery is the sin of violating a marriage covenant by having sexual intimacy with someone other than a spouse. It is essentially to go, if you're a married person, to go outside of your marriage and to participate in sexual sin with someone who isn't your spouse. That is it by definition. When the Bible speaks of adultery, it has the idea of going outside of the covenant relationship. But when James uses the term here, he was not referring to sexual adultery. It's not like he's exposing one more great and grand sin in this congregation 
Like all of you are married and all of you are sleeping around. That's not what he's saying. This is not physical sexual adultery that he's referring to here. He uses this term metaphorically to illustrate another type or form of adultery, one that his messianic audience, that means these people were Jews and they became Christians, so they're like Jewish Christians in a sense. He's using a familiar term with the messianic audience that they would have been highly familiar with and would have understood this word, moikalis. He wasn't pointing to sexual adultery. He was pointing to spiritual adultery. The Old Testament prophets frequently compared the relationship between God and his covenant people to a marriage relationship. Have you noticed how the Bible uses this marital relationship? Uh, all over the place. It even uses it in the New Testament. It uses the marriage as to depict the relationship that God has with his people. It's likened in Scripture to a marriage. Why? To show forth the kind of intimacy that God has with his people. Now, don't let your minds run crazy with the intimacy that a husband and wife share. and There's, there's no sexual connotation here. And I've heard some from the pulpit say there is, and I think that's disgusting and blasphemous to think that that is something that you would have with God. Marriage is is a term and an institution that we understand. Well, let me take that back. It is an institution that people do not understand today. But heaven forbid the people of God should understand what it is. But in any case, the Bible uses it to show the kind of deep, intimate, committed relationship that God holds with his people. That's what a human marriage is supposed to be between two humans. And in the Old Testament, the prophets were constantly doing this and showing God and his people in a marital kind of situation. We see a clear example of this in Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 6. It says, For your maker, speaking of God, right, is your husband... The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Israel in Scripture is depicted as this woman who's essentially been abandoned, and God comes in and rescues her and joins himself with her in covenant marriage. He's a redeemer. Who do you think Boaz is? Don't think of Boaz as Boaz. Think of Boaz as a picture of what God does for his people. Boaz redeems Ruth. God redeems his people in the same way. And so there you have this this marriage picture. And in this text, God is clearly portrayed as the husband and Israel as the wife. As I said a moment ago, we also see this marriage imagery in the New Testament, don't we? Where Christ is called over and over repeatedly the bridegroom, and the church is referred to in several places as his bride. In particular, Revelation 21.9. 
As I said, the, the Bible uses marriage imagery to illustrate the deep covenantal relationship God keeps and enjoys with his people. And therefore, since our relationship with him is like a spiritual marriage, if we go outside of it spiritually, we are guilty of committing spiritual adultery. Do you understand? Israel committed spiritual adultery when she went outside of her covenant relationship with God to pursue idols. That's a form of spiritual idolatry, to give yourself spiritually over to someone other than God. And they gave themselves over spiritually to idols. Baal, Asherah, these different idol gods, little g gods of the, of the region of Canaan. Whenever they did that, they were committing spiritual adultery. They were taking up idols and worshiping these idols and ascribing worth to these idols. This is a spiritual kind of adultery. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, God called Israel a treacherous wife. And he rebuked her for leaving her husband himself. Makes sense. James's audience had committed spiritual adultery when it went outside of its relationship with God to pursue the world, to believe what the world believes and to practice what the world practices. That is a kind of spiritual adultery. And that is precisely what James is pointing out to them here. This is why he calls them adulterous people. Let's continue to analyze the words and phrases. The Greek root word for friendship is uh, philia. Maybe you're familiar with some of the Greek words for love in the Bible. Phileo, which is like a brotherly love. Uh, agape or agapal, or some people say agapi. Sounds like guppy. That's the deep, profound, covenantal love of God. There's also eros, E-R-O-S, that would be sexual love. You have different forms of love and different types of Greek expressions for different forms of love. And we, we see that here with philia, uh, but the issue here is that it only appears right here. It doesn't appear anywhere else, only here. And, and what it means is it, it means to have a love or affection for someone or something based on association. Well, I love that guy because he loves the 49ers. That is a love for that person based on an association with a team who could not win the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, I had to slip that in there. Yeah, yeah. Amen. <laughs> that is... That is an associated or an association-based affection, right? Do you see? And that's what he's talking about here. It is a, a love or affection for someone or something based on association. Uh, the Greek root word for world, we've covered this before, is cosmos. Some people would call it cosmos. 
Um, it actually appears five times in James's letter, chapter 1, verse 27, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 4, what we're looking at here, twice. In four of its appearances here in James, it refers to the spiritual reality of the satanic man-centered system of this present age, which is hostile to God, hostile to God's people, hostile to the truth. Only once in James's letter does it actually refer to the actual planet and maybe the people of the planet. Four occurrences, it's talking about this world system that is corrupt and in opposition to God, secularism, all of that, everything that is evil and wicked in the world. Uh, MacArthur said it refers to the self-centered, godless values and mores of fallen mankind. Now, James's readers were like many, and I say this, with quote-unquote here, professing Christians, just because somebody professes doesn't mean they are, but his readers were like many professing, quote-unquote, professing Christians today who claim to love Jesus. Maybe they even go to church and do these sorts of things, but they refuse to disassociate themselves from the world. And when I say world, I'm not talking about the planet or unbelievers. I'm talking about the way the world believes and what it does. The, I, I believe that the church today, and I would say the visible church today, is absolutely full of people who profess Christ who are still married, in a sense, to the world. And maybe someone's popping into your mind. Hopefully it's not you, but if it is, today there's a way out. These people love the church and they keep a relationship with the church, but they also love the world and keep a relationship with the world. Again, not the people, not unbelievers, but with its belief and practice. I would say of them that they have one foot in the church and they keep the other foot in the world. They straddle the fence. Think of how this was playing out in this congregation James wrote to. They came to the weekly worship gatherings and blessed God. That means they worshiped God and they blessed him with their mouths, right? Chapter 3, verse 9a. These people came to church and did the things that we do, but they also what? They also showed partiality, right? They favored the rich over the poor, even though most of them were poor. Makes no sense. Chapter 2, verse 1. They came to church and worship, but they showed partiality. They, they also cursed those who were made in the likeness of God. Chapter 3, verse 9b. They came to church and worshiped God, but they also harbored bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts. Chapter 3, verse 14. They came to church and, and worshiped God, probably even handed out tracts down at the movie theater. They didn't have a movie theater then at the chariot races. And yet they were pursuing their own inner passions and lusts, which caused quarrels and fights in this congregation. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. In this 
combination of, of being worshipers and being worldly, the strange combination all of all of this together led James to conclude that his, his readers, this congregation, had an ongoing friendship with the world. And it, it is totally true that our conduct will reveal what or who we're friends with. Maybe not just in our conduct, but in our, well, I guess conduct, you can include what you say in your conduct, but what we say and do will kind of reveal what's going on there. And I want you to pay very, very close attention. I want you to notice what James says in the rest of the verse. This is, this is something we need to be very mindful of. He says very poignantly and very plainly, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity is ekthra in Greek. And do you know what it means? It means to make yourself an enemy of God. I'm literally, as I'm writing this sermon, I was reminded of Genesis 3.15. Because you don't see the word enmity in, in the scripture very often, but you do see it over the Hebrew text there where it talks about how the, the offspring of the serpent will be at enmity with the offspring of Eve. This is a, a prophecy and a prophetic statement that foretells the, the spiritual conflict that would exist between the devil and his children and Christ and his church. There is going to be... An, Quite frankly, there is also physical conflict there, hopefully not coming from the church side, but that has happened. But there is a spiritual conflict that has always existed since the fall of man between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. There's an enmity, a warfare. It's happening. It happens today. It happens now. And in some translations, like the NASB, which I do like, and the HCSB, which my wife really, really likes, it's a great one, ekthra can also be rendered as hostility, which is a great word, too. To be a friend with the world makes you hostile toward God, and God hostile toward you. Why is... Friendship with the world, enmity or hostility toward God. Why? Because the world is God's enemy. Having the world as your friend is equivalent to having an enemy of God as your friend. It's that simple. Contrary to what many, many foolish people believe these days, the world actually hates God and God hates the world. Oh, wait a minute. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Look, understand something here. Cosmos or cosmos in that text refers to people whom God is going to redeem through his son. Don't make the mistake of thinking that God loves the entire world, including the system that hates him. God hates that part of the world with righteous, holy hatred. 
He hates it. He does not love the world system. He hates the world system. He despises it. He hates the world system because it is wicked and evil, and God hates wickedness and evil, Psalm 5.4. You might be thinking, our God is not a God of hate. Our God is a God of holy hatred. He hates evil. He hates wickedness. In fact, in the very next line, Psalm 5.5, it even says, God hates all evildoers. Huh? But God is a God of love and he rides a my little pony. No. Our God is a righteous God, a holy God. He punishes all sin. All sin will be punished, is punished. Either two people paid for that sin, either Christ bore it for us or we're going to pay for it for all eternity. People are always saying things like, well, you know, hate the sin and love the sinner. Well, it's not sin that God casts into hell, it's sinners. Think about that. Does God love sinners? Yeah. Does God have a plan to save many sinners? Yeah. But God still punishes sin. What do you think he did to his son on the cross? Why do you think hell exists? God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. And, and to be friends with his enemy is incredibly offensive to him. But people think, well, God just loves the whole thing. No. No, he doesn't. If, if that were true, then why would God command his people not to love the world system? In 1 John 2.15, those who love the world do not have the love of God in them. That command there for the people of God not to love the world system, that command reflects God's own sentiment toward the world system, which is not love. If, if, if it were true that God just loves the whole thing, the whole thing's great to him, why people are always saying this today, why would God call his people adulterous when they love and keep friendship with the world in the verse we're studying? If that were true, why is God literally planning to tear down the entire world system, destroy its leaders, and replace it with the kingdom of Christ and eternal kingdom? I love what MacArthur says. He says, eat a steak, drive an SUV, it's all going to burn. What we know of the world, this, this is not going to be the same. It's going to be destroyed by fire and replaced. Boy, he just loves the whole thing. No. God hates the world system. He hates it with holy, righteous hatred, and rightfully so, because it has fully aligned itself against him, against his people, and against the truth. That's a fact. In the next line, James describes in plain terms what happens when a believer wants to be friends with the world, with God's enemy. Let's move to 4b. He just says so plainly and openly, 
It's like he's unpacking what he just said in the first half of the verse. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You don't understand what enmity means? How friendship with the world produces enmity? There it is. It, you just make yourself an enemy is what he's saying. So clear, so simple. Thank you for that exposition, James. Thank you for that commentary. The believer who wants to be friends with the world makes his or herself an enemy of God. Notice how I said the believer. And this is, this is a point where many theologians would object to what I have just said and would fully disagree with what I'm about to say. Some theologians, they would object to this interpretation of the verse. They say that James had to be speaking of unbelievers here because believers can never become enemies of God. And they would support their interpretation by showing how the Bible never refers to believers as enemies. And I'll tell you what, that part is true. That kind of language is never used in Scripture of believers. But I do believe it is used here. And if my theory is correct, this would mean that it is possible for a believer to make his or herself an actual enemy of God. And I know some of you are saying, but grace, but grace, but grace. Yeah, that's verses 6 through 10. We'll get there. Not today. Now let's just analyze the facts that we've already discovered in James here so I can um, build this theory of mine. First, who did James write his letter to? He wrote it to fellow believers whom he calls the 12 tribes of the dispersion, chapter 1, verse 1, and brothers, right? Over and over he calls these people brothers, chapter 1, verse 2, verse 16, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 1, verse 5, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 10, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 7, 9, 10, 12, 19. It's all over the place here. Brother, 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 brother. It's like Bruce. Hey, brother, hey, brother, hey, brother. James, are there some sisters here? Hey, sister, hey, sister, hey, sister. Okay, so what I'm telling you is that because he wrote it to these Christians who were scattered in this dispersion, and he refers to them as brothers, and this is brother believers over and over and over, he could not have been writing to unbelievers. And some say, yes, he was. And I say, I say, no, he wasn't. He's not writing to believers one moment, then, okay, by the way, this doesn't apply to you. Now let's talk about the unbelievers. That's ridiculous. No, he was writing to believers. That's the first point. Secondly, in verse 4a, James called them adulterous, right? You adulterous people. In order for a person to commit adultery, they must first be in covenant relationship or marriage with someone else. You can't call someone who's not in covenant relationship with God an adulterer. Only those who are in covenant relationship with him can be called an adulterer when they go outside of it. Think of it logically. And let me tell you something right now. One of the most logical writers in scripture is this guy, James. Sex outside of marriage is not adultery. It is fornication. 
Adultery only occurs when someone goes outside of their covenant marriage and is with somebody that isn't in that relationship with them. They're going with somebody they shouldn't be with. And unbelievers are not in a covenantal marriage-like relationship with God. They are divorced and separated from Him because of their sin. It is impossible for them to commit spiritual adultery. When they sin, they just sin against God. They are undoubtedly and for certain under a covenant of works, but that's a whole different subject. It's a whole different covenant. Only believers are in a covenant marriage-like relationship with God by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, which means that they alone can commit spiritual adultery against their husband, God. And how do they do it? By being friends with the world, God's very enemy. Again, not the people, not the planet per se, but the ideology I believe these two facts easily refute the unbeliever interpretation. So where does that leave us? I'll tell you where it leaves us. It leaves us with a very, very uncomfortable truth. And that is that it is not only possible for believers to become enemies of God, but it actually happens when they want to be friends with the world, when they pursue friendship with the world. That is very, very hard for me to swallow. To think that how I was a spiritual enemy of God and then reborn through the Holy Spirit and brought into his kingdom of light, that when I go back to that kingdom of darkness, I become yet again an enemy of him in some sense. And I believe that is precisely what James is teaching here. Is this the kind of enemy situation here where salvation is lost? No. No. R. Kent Hughes wrote, he says, These are painful thoughts that a Christian for whom Christ died when he was still an enemy, Romans 5.10, should in effect lower himself to live as a redeemed enemy of God. Yet this is the very focus of our text because James is writing to Christians. It must be said that those who persist in living as friends of the world are very likely without grace and not true Christians at all, despite their proclamations of faith. In the next line, James describes what friendship with the world, spiritual adultery, creates in the heart of God. Again, the emphasis here is on believers when believers do this we got to move to verse 5. He says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Stop there. Wow. I'll tell you, this is a, this is a difficult verse to translate. This is a difficult verse to get our minds around. Probably the most challenging, difficult verse in the whole letter. It has baffled brilliant minds for nearly two millennium, and I'm not going to pretend to have it down perfectly, but I think I have some basic idea of what it means here. 
Here, James appears to cite a verse that shows that God gets jealous when his covenant people commit spiritual adultery. But what he wrote here does not appear in Scripture in singular verse form. Doesn't it look like he's citing a verse? Look at the quotes. Now, you search your Scripture, any English translation, and try to find that as a verse in the Bible. Guess where you'll find it? Right here in chapter 4, verse 5, and nowhere else. What on earth is he quoting? What is he citing? Right? Is he just making stuff up as he goes like people do today? No. This statement is an amalgamation of verses that form a doctrinal truth. Verses like Exodus 20, verse 5, Exodus 34, 14, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2. Those verses all present God being jealous over his people. What James is basically saying is that Scripture as a whole teaches that God is jealous for his covenant people. So it's a broad statement that sort of encapsulates or communicates a singular truth from Scripture that is spoken about in many, many different places, and he puts it all together, and there, there it is. We need to analyze the amalgamation just for a moment. The word spirit seems to confuse modern readers, English readers, because it isn't capitalized. You notice that, how it's lowercase? They automatically assume, because it isn't capitalized, that James was talking about maybe our spirit, because you know how we're like triune beings, we have soul, spirit, and body. They think that because it's not capitalized, God, it, uh, the word must there be referring to our spirit rather than the Holy Spirit. But what we fail to understand is that the Greek, lang the Greek language did not differentiate lowercase and uppercase letters as we do. As a result, our Greek New Testament never capitalizes spirit, even when it clearly refers to the Holy Spirit. We have added capital, capitalization, uppercase, lowercase, for our own reading benefit, but you don't see that in the original Greek. This means that it is entirely possible for the lowercase form of spirit in our English translations to actually refer to the Holy Spirit. Now, translators have done as good as they can a job to try to, you know, differentiate between some other spirit. But I think that, uh, I don't know, I don't know what they did here in the ESV. About half the English translations are, you know, they're different from each other. Half of them say this is the spirit of man. Half of them say this is the Holy Spirit that's in reference here. If the word spirit refers to our spirit, then this rendering that we see here makes sense. When a person is regenerated or born again, his or her spirit is quickened and made new, Ezekiel 36, 26, right? I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. God could easily get jealous when a believer who has a new spirit, who is essentially a new person, commits spiritual adultery. He is essentially taking what God has given him as a new person. He is even as a new person acting in a way that is contradictory to what God has created him for. He is using his new spirit and new self. He is a new creation. He is using this 
to cheat on God spiritually, which in turn makes God jealous. And that seems to be the way that many English translations have it. That's what they say it means here. But if the word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, then this rendering here in James makes almost no sense at all. Because that would mean that God gets jealous over the Holy Spirit whom he causes to dwell in every believer. Why would God get jealous over the Holy Spirit who is God? (laughs) I believe the word spirit does refer to the Holy Spirit, and I prefer the New King James Version rendering because I think it best captures James' thought here. It reads... The Spirit, capitalized, who dwells in us, yearns jealously. So when believers commit spiritual adultery by being friends with the world, it makes God, the Holy Spirit, who is in them, jealous. But you must understand, because when we think of jealousy, we're like, jealousy is never good. It's not a good thing, right? It has a negative connotation. Let me help you understand something here. This jealousy that we're talking about here, it isn't lovesick junior high jealousy or some other perverted form of it. It's not. I like Sally. Well, so do I. I'll kill you. It's not that weird junior high drama jealousy. It's not. It's not some worldly perverted form of jealousy, a corrupted kind of jealousy. This is holy jealousy. God has holy jealousy for his covenant people. God is is like and, and superior to in every way, but he is like a good husband who truly and deeply loves his wife, and he gets jealous when other men come after her, her or when she flirts with other men. I don't know if you know this or not, but you familiar with the names of God in Scripture? God has many names, and, and these names that He has and bears, He has given Himself, have different meanings. Um, Yahweh, Yahweh! We sang it earlier, right? The name Yahweh. What does it mean? It means Lord, all caps. Or maybe you're familiar with the name Adonai. That means master. Maybe you've heard the name El Shaddai. That means almighty. God is El Shaddai. He is almighty. That is a name that he bears. Or El Olam. That means the everlasting. That name that he bears, El Olam, captures his eternality. He has no beginning, no end. One of my favorite names of God is easily one of the least mentioned. It is Elkanah. Elkanah. What a beautiful Hebrew rendering of the name of God. Elkanah. K-A-N-N-A-H. E-L in the front. And we see it in Exodus 34, 14. The Good News translation, I like the way that it renders it. It says, 
do not worship any other God because I, the Lord, there's Elkanah. I, Elkanah, tolerate no rival. Do you know what Elkanah means in Hebrew? It means jealous. One of the names of God is jealous. Now listen to how the King James renders the exact same verse. I believe it's in your bulletin. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God is not only jealous for his covenant people, but he has a name that reflects his holy jealousy, Elkanah. His name and jealous love ought to discourage any attempt on our part to become friends with the world and steal us against wandering after the selfish, soul-destroying idols of sinful pleasure. Why, why is God jealous over his people, his covenant people? Why, is he, why does he even bear the name jealousy? Why, what is that all about? Why would he be jealous over me that when I attempt to become friends with the world, and step out of this union in this covenant relationship I have with them, to kind of step out of that and join myself with the world. Why, why would he get jealous over that? Because he loves me. How has he shown his love for his covenant people? Do you see the big wooden item thing behind me? Do you see that thing that's got the crossbar? It's got a bar going up and a bar going side to side. That cross represents the love of God for his people. A love that is so chasmic and deep, unfathomable in a sense, if you want to try to grasp the whole thing. The cross displays the love of God for his people. It is a deep, profound love. He has every right to get jealous when I attempt to be friends with his enemy. Doesn't he? How utterly offensive it must be to our true, perfect husband when we keep friendship with the world. We believe what it believes, and we live out what it says we should live out. Christ died on a cross to take us out of the world so that we would never return to it. And thank God 
that God's salvation is impervious to all these things, and nothing can literally take us out and fully place us back in the world. But we can certainly play this game, can't we, where we put one foot in and one foot out. Why would we even want to tempt God with jealousy as his people whom he's redeemed and put us in covenant relationship with him? Why would we want to, why would we, are we not cognitive of what, cognizant of what's going on in our relationship with God? Are we not paying attention to what we're doing or thinking through the implications of what happens when we choose sin? We have been plucked out of the enemy of God. We should no longer continue to be friends with it. We shouldn't flirt with it. And this will be, this right here, what we're talking about here, will be the battle and war and struggle of our lives as Christians. Every day. Today, we're faced with where will our allegiance be today? Will it be to the kingdom of God and God himself, or will it be to the devil and to this world? Will it be to my flesh? No. And we need to remember that God loves us with a pure, deep love, so much so that he crushed his son for our iniquities to deliver and rescue us out of the world. He sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the Spirit of Christ to come into us and make us new people. We ought to disassociate ourselves daily from this world which is perishing. The world is not your friend not the friend of God. In this next section, he talks about God has more grace for us, which is wonderful. That's James's version of the gospel. And we don't need to wait a week or two to hear that. God does give us more grace. But with that grace comes not just the cleansing of sin comes the empowerment to turn away from sin. Comes the empowerment to abandon this perishing world. And so we march on together as his so deeply, dearly loved covenant people. That's what we are. We should not live the rest of our time in these bodies for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of pagans, haven't we? Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. You know, that's 1 Peter 4, verses 2 and 3 that I just cited to you. This is literally what Peter tells his audience. He's saying to them, you know what? You don't spend the rest of your time in your body pursuing what you used to pursue, acting like a pagan like you used to be. You're a new person. You're a new creation. 
pursue the will of God. God has more grace for us. But may we never use that grace as an excuse for our sin or a license to keep and maintain some kind of friendship with this world system. May we use our minds because it's important for us to use our intelligence to believe through the power of the Holy Spirit the Word of God and to stick to the truth and not be deceived into believing the lies of this world. And may we also not live out the conducts which flow out of belief. Sometimes. I can actually sin, and I do, and I hate it. But just because I sin doesn't mean I agree with the world. I don't. But sin is still offensive to God. Christ died for our sin. But the focus and emphasis here on this text is on being friends with the world. If you have a friendship with the world going, and that manifests itself through conduct in these things, break that friendship today through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in us to mortify sin. That's one of his chief operations. He literally is a sin crusher. He is. He's a sin crusher. I've been reading Owen lately on the mortification of sin. It's a wonderful, wonderful little book. Call on the Holy Spirit to be a sin crusher in you. Call upon him and ask him for divorce papers. Because today's the day we divorce ourselves from this world.